but see this uses this analogy you have to build it slowly and steadily um through a series of actions a series of reps but it is a virtue like muscle is is it's diachronic it's something that's gained over time maintained over time i i, I like that i think act versus character is really important when we talk about the discipline of ascent we're, we're not just talking about acts Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. In this episode, Michael and I discuss the discipline of ascent, also called the discipline of judgment. We use both terms here and elsewhere. It's one of the three essential Stoic domains. And in this conversation, we talk about what is important, significant about it, how to practice it, what sorts of exercises uh, are available, and then finally talk about challenges, common obstacles to work through when applying the discipline of ascent. Before we start, Michael and I are running our live course this month, Stoicism Applied. It's grounded in the three Stoic disciplines with our experience teaching Stoicism in the academy uh, and also, of course, through the Stoa app. So do check that out. We're kicking it off October 23rd. You can find more information about it at stoameditation.com slash course. Here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Ontiveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And today we're going to be talking about the one of the Stoic disciplines, the discipline of judgment, also called the discipline of ascent. We're going to be going through what some of what we think are the most significant and important aspects of this discipline, exercises one can do to train in this discipline, and then finally uh, go through some of the challenges that we or we notice others hit when thinking of applying this discipline to our own own lives. Yeah, let's do it. I mean, these this if you don't know about these disciplines yet, the three three disciplines of Stoicism, I think this is a good place to start. This would be a deep dive into one of them. But for those that for those that do, you know how important the discipline of ascent is, along with sometimes called the discipline of, of desire and the discipline of action is a threefold division in Stoic philosophy around how to live and how to educate ourselves. And so today we are digging into that, that epistemology, that question of knowledge, that question of how do you, how do you think that right, the right way, discipline of judgment and ascent. Yeah. Yeah. So the discipline of judgment, that's broadly all about reasoning well, making good judgments, assenting to the impressions that one ought to or withholding assent from places where you should be more uncertain i'd say it's you know it's fundamentally about seeing things as they are without adding unnecessary value judgments making mistakes in reasoning and so on of course all the disciplines work together you know you need accurate judgments in order to know what one ought to desire. And for the Stoics, desire and judgment are critically linked. And then, of course, the judgments one makes are, in many cases, decisions and lead to lead to action. 
what, what do you want to say in terms of just some like introductory remarks for people to get a, a sense of the discipline of judgment in case they haven't encountered it before? Yeah, I mean, I think you did a good job with it. Yeah, so the discipline of ascent, I think in many ways is the most important discipline. So Stoic virtue is, it's about knowledge. So the Stoics think, you know, if you think the right way, then you'll feel the right way and you'll do the right thing, right? So if you if you know what's important in each situation, if you understand what's really good and bad, if you understand what's worth doing, what's not worth doing, you'll do it. So character, our character, our desire, our motivations, all of that is a type of knowledge and understanding of what to do and why it's the right thing to do and what matters. So the discipline of ascent in that way, it seems fundamental. It seems like the most important one. But on the flip side of this, one thing that Epictetus talks about is he also says it's really the last one, the the last one to focus on, the one to focus on after you've gotten the other two disciplines right. Epictetus talks about, you know, you don't want to solidify if you if you don't think the right things and you're misguided and you're misled and, and you don't understand stoicism, you don't want to work on solidifying your beliefs, cementing that un, that those opinions, really becoming more confident in in acting in accordance with your opinions. You don't really want to work on any of this process unless you have the right the right material to work with. So in one sense, uh, ascent, judgment, it underpins all of Stoicism. At the other sense, it's also the most advanced thing you can do. It's also the the, the thing that people need to work on to transition from advanced Stoic to sages is really perfecting this 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 final act too. So I don't know if that's confusing, that goes both ways, but it's, it's something where it's both fundamental and advanced. And I think that's something worth keeping in mind as we talk about it. Some of the stuff we'll talk about is, is really basic to Stoicism, and some of the stuff is the kind of stuff, you know, only ever assenting properly, right? Always mm-hmm. changing your mind if you're presented with compelling evidence, always suspending judgment unless you have sufficient evidence. That's kind of stuff that, you know, only the sage will be able to do. So perfecting it is really advanced. But I think the basic, the base of any Stoic practice is going to involve some of this as a beginner too. Right, right. Yeah, that's a, a good point. So we're for this conversation, we reread the chapter on the discipline of uh, ascent from the book *The Inner Citadel* by the French philosopher Pierre Hadot. And this book is principally on the philosophy of Marcus Aurelius, and especially pays attention to how Marcus Aurelius's philosophy and his meditations is derived from some of the key teachings of Epictetus, especially the three disciplines. And Hido, in his list, as he goes through the three disciplines, he has the discipline of judgment, discipline of desire, then the discipline of action, perhaps because the discipline of judgment just is so central to Marcus's thinking. But it's also true that behind our Marcus's thinking is infused with all three. And as such, we'll, we'll be going through some of the later disciplines in uh, podcast episodes. So the key way we organize our, our course, we're working on, on the course on Maven, and it's going to be structured using these, these disciplines as well. But we should get into what we think is most important, most significant about the discipline of judgment in particular. So do you want to kick things off? Yeah. So the, the part to understand about the discipline of ascent. So 
again, there's these three, there's these three disciplines. You have ascent, desire, and action. And I think these these can I always think this back in terms of Stoic psychology. So when we're when we're talking about Stoicism, we're talking about character development, being better people, always thinking about well, how does the mind work? How are we training the mind? How are we improving ourselves? And when you think about Stoic psychology, we the they provide this model where you get impressions. So that's kind of this input coming from the physical world, the things you're encountering. Then there's this ascent process or this reflection process that you then ascent to that impression or not. And then that ascent, once it's completed, that produces your beliefs. And if it's something to do with value, it produces desires. It produces your actions, your motivations. So really, I think of stoicism as this kind of input output. And then there's this black box in the middle and that's you. Or maybe it's this, maybe it's, maybe it's an opaque or a uh, see-through box, a glass box that you have an understanding of, but there's this there's this step in the middle, and that's you, right? So if somebody's a cowardly person and there's this impression of danger, then the output is going to be running away, fear. If you're a courageous person and there's this impression of danger, the you know the the output is going to be well an appropriate response, maybe a cautious response, but not an extremely fragile, impassioned response. And so the discipline of ascent is is what determines the output, right? The ascent is is where you get your desire, your belief, your emotions, your passions. So when the reason the discipline of, of ascent is important is because everything that follows that we judge ourselves by, well, how are the quality of, what are the how are the quality of your beliefs? How are the quality of your actions? What is your character like when push comes to shove and you're you're in an extreme event? That's kind of big, even in smaller moments. How irritable are you? How you know selfish are you? How grateful are you in the kind of a day to day? Even all of that mm-hmm. comes down to how are you responding to those impressions? When we say responding, we mean how are you assenting to those impressions? How are you relating to them? So in that way, it's fundamental both in terms of your character over time, in, and in terms of your vices, and in terms of your virtues and your mood. Everything comes down in Stoicism to if not a, a sense in the moment, then a series of ascents over time, a series of, you know, either successful or, or unsuccessful reactions to impressions. So, I don't know if you think of a if you think of a, a boat or something that's on a trajectory, then the ascent is how you can slowly start to move that trajectory as you build your character over time. So it's really mm-hmm. it's, it, it underpins everything about us, everything that we evaluate ourselves for comes from this. The other things that we'll criticize, which is passions, mistaken beliefs, you know, poor behavior, that is just it, that is just a sense. Epictetus has this beautiful line um, where he talks about the, you know, the 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 Iliad, the story of the the Battle of Troy. It's nothing but a series of impressions and reactions to it. You know, someone had the the impression to to be offended and to, to take offense and launch the war. So Paris had the impression, you know, of, of Helen and fell in love. And then because of that, you get this, you get this entire, this entire war. And if, you know, if that, imp- if, if Paris hadn't responded to that impression that way, we would have lost the odyssey that follows from it. So this view of this entire great work of art, uh, Epictetus is reducing down to the discipline of ascent and how, it, how it, how that ascent occurred in a single moment. And I think that's a, I think that's a really, that that just underpins the importance of it and goes back to that mm-hmm. point I was making before about being 
in some way the most basic building block of Stoic philosophy, while also the most advanced, important thing you can do. Absolutely. What I, I think one of the most significant aspects for me is that this discipline grounds the idea that we can form and enter. There's this line that you know, life doesn't happen to us. It's not an external matter. It happens within. And I think one way to understand that slogan is that our judgments, what we assent, how we respond to impressions, that's where life really goes on, as it were. And the impressions that we're given, these external events that cause impressions, those aren't the sorts of things that are up to us. Rather, it's how we respond to them that matters, that forms our character, and that determines the trajectory of our lives. And if we do that well, I think one of the key promises of Stoicism is that we can build a kind of resilience, build a source of meaning by simply thinking well, responding to the impressions we receive appropriately. And the way that's done is by practicing this discipline of ascent and ensuring that we accept all the impressions or representations that are objective, that are true, and then either withhold our judgment when matters are uncertain or refuse the uh, irrational impressions we might receive or impressions that uh, represent things other than the way they are. Yeah, I mean, I think that connects to my point because I think my point was more descriptive. Well, there's this three-stage process, impression, ascent, Mm -hmm. and then belief, action. But your point is descriptive, but also kind of, uh, I was thinking as like part of, as you said, the promise of Stoicism. Well, well, hey, that's actually pretty cool. Hey, that means we have an inner citadel. That means we have freedom. That means we have the space between impression and action. That's a space the Stoics say that animals don't have, right? Like that's something that differentiates us as rational creatures from non-rational animals. And that provides that in this inner citadel where life happens. So it's not just a description of the fact, but it's like, oh, this is pretty important and pretty meaningful that this exists. And that's where the fun happens, I guess. Yeah, 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 that's right. And I think we often add stories or value judgments to things that are not necessarily true and trying to improve that, trying to correct that. That's a matter of practicing the discipline of ascent. So uh, Hado has two excellent quotes he pulls out from Epictetus and Marcus Aurelius at the very beginning of the chapter. One from Epictetus, he was sent to jail. What happened? He was sent to jail, but he is unhappy is added by oneself. And then the other from Marcus Aurelius, don't tell yourself anything more than what your primary representations tell you. If you've been told so-and-so's been talking behind your back, then this is what you've been told. You've not, however, been told that somebody has done a wrong to you. So there's that idea of, okay, you received uh, an impression and then the next step is a sense. And that's where you can refuse to accept any impression that includes these added stories that are maybe these subjective matters, these value judgments. And then that's going to impact your beliefs, beliefs and actions. Yeah, and I mean that's that's the other thing that I thought was important about this this discipline that I think Hado does a really good job of calling out. I'm guilty of this. I think with all this talk of impressions, it's easy to forget that many of the impressions 
we judge are self-generated or at least influenced by ourselves. So, you know, I, one way you present this picture is like, you know, you see a car, is it really a car? It becomes this, this kind of detached, you know, fact game about the external world. But really, when we see a car, the kind of impression that we're judging that we generate is like, wow, there's a car, it's in front of me, so I'm going to be late for work. Or wow, that's a real beautiful thing because I like cars. Or wow, that's a real noisy, annoying thing. The impression is often very rarely are we judging just a factual impression in a vacuum. Almost never. We're almost always distorting that impression or I would say it's running through the filter of our subjective experience so that what we're actually putting to the test and evaluating is something that we've added to in some respect, right? We've, we've altered it. And I mean, that's what the, your quotes speak to is this idea of, well, take a step back, unalter it. <laughs> you know, if he's gone to jail, take away the part that you've altered, which is like, wow, that's really bad. He must be really sad. His life is ruined. Unalter it. Just, just decompose it. We talk about this a lot on, on this show, the, the exercise of decomposition, take it back to its, to its original nature. But, you know, that's our internal dialogue. That's our subjective self, which is both alternating these, altering these impressions and then also generating them. Like anytime you've sat and had regret or thought about a past memory or felt embarrassment about something that you did in middle school, you know, or got angry about a perceived slight that happened a long time ago, that's actually you generating an impression that you're reflecting upon from your memory, right? Mm -hmm. And so that kind of, it's not just input output from the external world. There's also the self-generated input, this, this imagination, this internal life, this internal dialogue, which is constantly adding to that. Your self-talk really is constantly adding to that. It's constantly creating impressions that you're, you're having to decide what to do with. And I think calling that out, Hado does a really good job of, because that's something that I sometimes don't emphasize enough. And I think it's a really important thing to remember. I think so. I mean, just this morning, I had a thought of an episode five years ago. This is as soon as I woke up, where I just completely misinterpreted what to someone had said to me at a lunch and was embarrassed. And for whatever reason, this is a sort of thought just that keeps on appearing on a, you know, maybe every two months or something like this. <laughs> and I have both the, there's sort of the natural judgments one makes about doing embarrassing things like that. And then also it's so easy to let those thoughts sort of run away and think about, well, imagine those two people at a lunch mentioning that embarrassing thing <laughs> I said. And that's just a descriptive matter, a hypothetical. And it's really pretty easy to let these thoughts sort of run, up, run away from you. I don't, I don't know what you said, Caleb, but I don't think they do. I'm not, <laughs> I'm pretty sure they don't. I don't, I don't do that. I don't talk about embarrassing things people said five years ago. That's it's probably the sort of thing where they've likely forgotten. And <laughs> I have the, the fortune of keeping that event, you know, alive for at least the next few, few decades, depending on how well, <laughs> how well my memory upholds. We'll see. What else do you have? What do you have on terms of most important or significant aspects of, of the practice? So I think this is another thing that people actually miss at the discipline ascent. And I think this is really important. One metaphor that I like for the discipline of ascent is I like to think of it as the lawyer, you know, the kind of the judge. So the impression comes in and the judge evaluates it and, and gives it a verdict. You know, you're true or you're false, bangs down the gavel. But 
the the judge makes that decision based on the evidence that it's presented and the evidence that it's pre- the, the judge is presented comes from us right so we only can assent as well as our current beliefs we only can have as good a sense as our current beliefs and evidence that we have access to so someone can't spontaneously generate knowledge it's it's built through a careful process of assent grounded in true beliefs that we then build up a store of evidence you know i don't know take the take the thing you said that was embarrassing right you in a vacuum you know if you're 10 or nine years old you don't know how to deal with that situation now that we're our age we have a series of evidence we say well i'm 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 the age i am now i don't really spend time thinking about embarrassing things other people did five years ago that's a piece of evidence well i said something embarrassing to somebody else and then i asked them and they didn't remember or care that's another piece of evidence but we kind of build up this storehouse of, of evidence that we can then use to put the impression on trial and so what i mean by that is like when we're progressing Often what we do is we, we're, well, I read it in a book that's false, or I read it, a stoicism told me that this doesn't matter, so this is, so I'm fine, and we just pretend like that's the, that was assent, when it's not. Assent is this kind of really deep, internalized belief and understanding, and that's built on slowly building a storehouse of evidence over time that you can then present to the inner judge, you know? And I think that's a part that gets missed. It's not, you're not assenting in a vacuum. You're assenting based on you, whether or not whether or not an uh, impression seems true or false to you can only come down to the beliefs you currently have. And so you want to stack that in your favor by having as good beliefs as possible. And you do that by reading smart people, by reading Stoics, by learning about philosophy, by engaging with arguments. You build up this storehouse of evidence to use against these impressions. But I think that's a really important thing to remember. These aren't things that happen in vacuums, these these moments of ascent. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a, a very important. We should, well, I think we should come back to that when we're talking about challenges. Totally. Because I think there's both some important lines of thought around how people might misconstrue the discipline. And then also, okay, you know, given that you might not have the best beliefs in your store, given that sometimes it's difficult to uh, deeply internalize principles of what, you know, what's next, what should you do? Um, so we can, we can touch on that some more when we come to the challenges, but I think now we can probably move to okay, we have a, a good sense of the discipline. We've expressed why we think it's significant, what's important about it. Now, what can we do to improve our ability to set to what we ought to? And strategy we both noted here is this practice of describing things in objective terms the decomposition exercise from Marcus Aurelius. You know, he has this famous passage in the meditations where he describes this fancy Falerian wine merely as grape juice, the royal tunic as the blood of a dried shellfish, and just that as an effort, as a way of to shift perspective and see these things about which there are so many different narratives, narratives about prestige, power, and but instead see them as they are in their physical sense. There's a, a passage from Hado that I have here. One must 
always make a definition or description of the object which is presented in a representation so as to see it in itself as it is in its essence in its nakedness in its totality and in all its details one must say to oneself the name which is peculiar to it as well as the names of the parts which compose it and into which it will be resolved i mean yeah i love this decomposition i think that's a really i think that's a really helpful one the point here is that look we we receive a sense impression but by the time we're judging it it's gone through our subjectivity and we've turned it into something else like that car example I was using, like you were using a, a royal robe, you know, there's a sense impression of something materialist, like materially, this is a dyed piece of cloth, but we think, wow, this person's really amazing. They're really rich, really important. We, we, we add all these other things to it. And so decomposition is taking that away. I really like it because it, rem it, it, it it stops this. I mean, one of the other exercises I have is suspending judgment. I think suspending judgment is really important. But you don't want to get into this state where you're just always suspending judgment, right? You got to kind of move forward. You have to accept some things. And so the things the Stoic can accept with confidence are the physical things, right? The thing that the Stoic has to be more cautious about is those value judgments. Make sure those are right. But you can accept these physical things. You go, look, this is, this is a piece of dyed cloth in front of me. Okay, what does that mean for me? That's a, that's a question the Stoic can immediately act from. You know, oh, this is a this is a really important person who's more important than me, and and uh, I should revere. That's a judgment that requires a lot more pausing, thought, introspection, and caution. So I like decomposition mm -hmm. because it actually gives me, when I practice it, it gives me something to act from. You know, it gives me something to move from in the situation rather than just suspending my judgment, but something that I can act from with confidence. I don't know about you. What do you think? No, yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think that decomposition is useful because it gives you, it gives you those basic physical facts, it gives you a useful perspective that one can always check into. And I suppose it's especially effective in cases where there are these narratives, there are these very compelling value judgments, which is, I think, what you see in the case maybe of fancy cars or clothing, or perhaps an even more subtle spheres where redescribing things can put those narratives into into question or at least help you think about them more appropriately yeah great way to practice the discipline of ascent that i think is important sounds very cliche and somewhat unhelpful but i think is just to not make basic mistakes and reasoning and one way to do that is think about if you were the kind of person who wanted to get this issue, whatever issue is bothering you, right, how would you, what would you do? How would you think about this if you had to in the space of five minutes or something like that? So to make that more concrete, there's, I was reading a the book, A Liberated Mind, recently by the psychotherapist, clinical psychologist, Stephen C. Hayes, who we'll hopefully have on the program soon. And he talks about this story where he had a patient come in who was convinced that nothing matters to them. They didn't care about their family. They didn't care about their career they didn't even care about having fun. And then Stephen's response is, well, you know, we didn't try to convince him that that belief was completely false. He just said, you know, notice 
when you experience pain, you know, you're in here for a reason, you're probably experiencing pain, just check in and see if anything matters at that point in time, or, or if there's something you care about. And the person, of course, comes back and they, you know, they have this story about how they notice sadness or they're eating alone at a restaurant and they saw a, a happy family and they realize, oh, I do in fact care about happy family. And that's the sort of thing where emotions can overleap our reason in such a way that some basic things that we can catch if we're paying attention can escape our notice. So I think maybe a useful, hopefully useful frame, I think is just try your best not to make basic mistakes. In some sense, that's completely useless advice, but in another sense, you know, don't overcomplicate things. Think about things from the framework of oh, if someone is really trying to get this right in the space of five minutes, what sorts of things would they do? Yeah. I mean, the don't make mistakes thing is like, I think you're right to joke about it being a bit frustrating as advice, but the don't make basic mistakes point is that if you flip it, the idea is that a lot of the mistakes we make are basic. And I think that's a good, that's a good point, right? Like that's the, that's the, okay. A lot of the mis- don't overcomplicate a lot of the mistakes you're making. A lot of the mistakes people make are just basic ones. And if you put some attention to it, you can catch a lot more of those and make a lot more progress than you might suspect. Yeah, exactly. I think that's, that's, a, that's the main, main motivations. Just that, like, I think what, uh, there are a number of things one can do in order to think better. And it seems, you know, if I think about my life, the sorts of mistakes I've made are on reflection, often the sorts of things I could have figured out relatively easy. They're easily if I had paid attention in the right way or simply thought through things in a more detailed or diligent manner. That might be tr- not true for everyone, but I think as a general observation, it does seem clear to me that often it's, I mean, it's just hard to get all the basics right. So before looking at maybe some more complex strategies, always useful to sort of just double check, go through checklists. And before I, I should stop before going on this point, too long, but there's, I think, some additional evidence for this view is there's a book called The Checklist Manifesto by a doctor, which goes through how powerful checklists are when performing different medical procedures, surgical procedures. And often each item on those checklists are not that important. But when you know you're in the thick of it, doing something exceptionally high stakes, high stakes medical procedure, it's especially important that you do all those things and having something as basic, even almost paternalistic as a checklist has been found to be very effective in the medical procedure. I'm sure many of you have had experiences in business where you think about, especially if you're putting on some complex logistical event or something like that, each part is in itself simple, but making sure the whole thing comes together is it's is non-trivial so perhaps our thinking is like that in the same way so what would a stoic checklist look like what would, what would like three check boxes be yeah yeah i think that it's of course one of the key ones is is this up to me or not is this my own another one that i think is useful is if you have if you can think about this role modeling, you know, what would someone who wants to get this right, how, and had to think about it for five minutes, what would they actually do? What would they check? And then finally you have 
The, the other one might just be, okay, now that you've role modeled how someone might think about this, if it's useful, actually do it uh, and, and set that timer and try to think, think through the matter if, if that's something that's available um, to you. But I, th- and I think we'll touch on some, some other ones here as well, but those are some initial ones that, that come to mind. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of decomposition as a third one, something that can, that can work. Um, yeah, but I like that idea. I mean, I like the idea of the checklist, the getting the small things right, like most, like so many other things in life, so many other skills or crafts, the, the art of living is just getting those small things right again and again and again. And I think that in some ways might be frustrating if you're looking for a secret, but in other ways is, is I think to be expected and where the hard work comes in, right? Another, I think that's a, yeah, it's a fun idea, Caleb. Another, another one that I do in terms of like basic errors that I try to avoid, and I have, this is one of my exercises. I think one of the things you can do is like learn the rules of logic, learn about logical fallacies. So just kind of understand basic errors of reasoning that people fall into, basic biases to try to identify those and slow down when they're happening. You know, one thing that I try to do that I would say is on my checklist is I try to have a, we, we should, we should maybe write one of these up, a stoic thinking checklist yeah. is if I is to have a consistent standard of judgment, which means to be a standard of judgment that I apply, even if the situation benefits me or the situation harms me. Right. So, you know, if I'm having an argument with somebody, I might say, well, look, I, I looked up this peer reviewed literature or it says on Wikipedia that I'm right. And then I was, so I would take that as evidence to confirm my view. But then if someone arguing against me was like, oh, well, look, I found this article or I found it on Wikipedia. And then I start to say, well, I, I don't really believe that. That shows me that I don't have a consistent standard of judgment, that I'm, I'm bending the rules to suit some sort of greater desire or you know need, which is maybe to be right or to preserve my ego in a situation. So I try to catch myself in points like that, not just in arguments, but in terms of my own believing, right? Like if mm-hmm. I'm like, well, this is the standard of judgment that I'll have to, before I believe something. If something I don't think is true stands up to that, well, I guess I need to change my mind on the matter. I need to change my mind or I need to change the standard and be consistent with it. And that's been really helpful with me because it's so easy in our reasoning to fall into a kind of confirmation bias thing where very, very low standards, if we agree with it or it benefits us, very high standards, if we disagree or it harms us. And so that's a, a simple checklist rule that I apply. And I think something that, that, people can use to, to get that, get that discipline of ascent in check. So Epictetus, you know, for example, talks about having a set of scales that you weigh things by, right? And he's like, you would never go to the market and, you know, you don't have a scale to, to measure up the weight of the fish you're buying next to the gold or something like this. So when you, when you think about things, you need a scale, you know, what's that scale going to be? Um, and, I, he's talking specifically about the dichotomy of control. We're talking about good and bad. So that scale is, is it up to us? Is it our own? But I, I think that same thing is be really clear about what, really clear about what gets an assent from you or what, what, what justifies a belief and make sure that standard of, of standard criteria is, is consistent. That's one thing that I work on. Yeah. I think that's all. I think that's, that that's especially useful. Like things like consistency and, we should, we really should put together a, a, a checklist of sorts. <laughs> I think it's probably the sorts of thing that both of us and I imagine many listeners as well have uh, in our heads, but haven't yet made uh, as explicit. I'm going to add it to my to do checklist. Yeah, yeah. Write, check- <laughs> <laughs> Write this checklist. Got checklists for our checklists. <laughs> Another exercise I think I want to mention here is that 
one ascent, I think it's easy to think of it, and maybe I'll say a little bit more about this later when I come to challenges, easy to think about it as a matter of a simple snapshot. You know, you get an impression, next step is you agree to it or not, and then next, you move on. But often, I think forming our beliefs, forming our habits is something that we need to do repeatedly and one way to you know really internalize a belief or improve our thoughts is to make those that those correct assents over and over again but we can also make it easier to assent to what is true by changing our behavior so i and i think this is what things like exposure therapy help people do so there are some people who really don't like going outside at all and they become hermits and rob themselves of social interaction. And I think, you know, one way to approach that would just be whenever they notice those ancient thoughts, try to rebuke them and then move on. But another way to take on those thoughts is to change the impressions you're receiving. And that it could involve, you know, slowly exposing yourself to more social situations, exposing yourself to going outside and doing that in a reasonable way, you know, scaling to scarier and scarier situations, as it were, until you're able to live out uh, a good a good social life. So by doing that, you know, you might have some belief, I cannot survive by if I go to a house party. Well, one way to show that belief is false is by going to that, getting to that state where you can go to the house party and noticing that you can, you survive. Uh, and that's going to be, I think, useful in, in fact, you know, shaping your beliefs and in, in that case, living, perhaps having a better, better social life. Yeah. It's like that evidence before the judge thing, right? Like we're, we're not brains yeah. and vats who are self-generate. Sometimes it's, 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 if, if you go out into the world, you will get pieces of evidence, especially if you do it in a way that's like sustainable within your com- like just a bit outside your comfort zone. You will get pieces of evidence. You will get types of experiential knowledge that can then play back into this feedback loop. So instead of generating changed behavior, instead of generating changed behavior through a set of thinking, you change your thinking through a set of behavior because that behavior then inputs evidence into the into the thinking, right? It changes the course of the thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, we want to move on to challenges, but I want to get just one I want to get one last of my exercises here, which is suspending judgment. And so we talk about suspending judgment a lot. It's one of these basic stoic exercises, which is first things first, when you become a stoic, extend that space between impression and assent. Give yourself time to think, give yourself time to reflect. But I really just want to explain it using the framework we've been talking about today, or at least my judge metaphor, which is to say, by suspending judgment, you're not just doing nothing. You're not just delaying the inevitable, or you're not just assuming a skeptical position. You're really decreasing, increasing the length of the court case, right? And the view is that you know, if if if, if I give this judge five seconds to deliberate, he might come up with a poor decision. But if I give him five minutes. I have space to, and time to introduce new arguments, to introduce new evidence, to actually change the decision. So even though the judge is the same, even though I'm the same person, whether I assented in five seconds instantly or in five minutes or in a week, I can actually change the way that I relate to that impression by 
changing the the evidence that I'm considering, changing the beliefs that I'm putting forward. And this was a big part of Stoicism. Epictetus's discourses and handbook, discourses were the lectures. The handbook was something literally meant to be carried in your hand. And the function of the handbook actually was to was to serve that function, was in these moments of deliberation to introduce the appropriate quote, introduce the appropriate consideration to be evidence in that in that court case in your mind, right? And so suspending judgment, I guess I, I guess I want to say spending judgment is a really crucial exercise, but I want to encourage people listening to be more active in that suspension of judgment. When you do suspend that judgment, don't just assume a skeptical position or delay, but actually actively uh, introduce counterarguments, consider uh, stoic thoughts or you know even your own thoughts and your own values in that situation. Make it more of an active process. Yeah, yeah. I think that's uh, that's that's abs- that's useful. Cool. Well, what do we have for challenges? Yeah. So these are, I mean, a couple ways you can take challenges. One is challenging applying the discipline of ascent correctly, and actually, what challenges people have when they go about trying to succeed in this. So one thing that I wanted to call attention to, which Hado does a really good job of calling out, is this difference between impression and lecta. Lecta is a you know it's a technical Greek term translated as sayable, but the lecta is the thing that you assent to. So you don't assent to the, you know, the physical sense impression information. What you do is you, you represent that in some sort of proposition in your mind. Like, oh, there's a, there is a, a noisy car in front of me and that's a pain. That's annoying. That's the, that's the actual proposition that you construct from the sense information. And that is the lecta. That's the sayable. And that's the thing you assent to or don't assent to. One implication of this is that, you know, multiple people can have the same impression. We can all be walking down the street. One person goes, wow, it's a beautiful car. One person's totally has total equanimity. And the person goes, wow, that car is super annoying and loud, or even I think it's ugly. So multiple people can have different lectas, different you know propositions from the same sense impression, right? And so I think the challenge, I think first of all, that's interesting to note and important to note. And Hado does a really good job of calling that out. But second, I think this challenge is, you know, how do we improve our sayables? How do we improve our lectas? How do we become the kind of people that, you know, create charitable impressions of things or accurate impressions of things or stoic impressions of things right from the get-go? Because the person who has bad sayables or bad lecta, they're at a major disadvantage. They have to pay more attention. They have to be more careful. You think about someone like this with like an anger problem, Right. That person is going to get much worse impressions when they're encountering frustrating situations or the people in their life. They're going to get much worse propositions that their ascent has to deal with. So I think one of these struggles or one of the questions is, you know, not just that discipline of ascent, not just that moment of action, but how can you stack the odds in your favor by having these like nicer people on trial, these better things, these easier situations on trial instead of these complicated frustrating, difficult ones, right? I think that's something that, that I'm, I'm thinking about personally in my own practice. Yeah, it's, a, it's an important challenge. I think it's related to a, a, the challenge that I have here, which is thinking of the discipline of judgment in a sort of snapshot way misses that what you're aiming to do is training or virtue. So there's this fancy way of framing this, which is synchronic versus diachronic or synchronic that's just looking at a very specific time you know what's the right action at this time diachronic you're looking across time 
and thinking about, you know, what's maybe the optimal behavior, optimal character to have in order to think through these situations well. Sort of an, an act versus character distinction. And I think one way in which th this can come into one's life in interesting ways is that if you take anxiety, if someone has an anxious, irrational thought about, oh, I say they've got some logistic matter, they need to call someone to make sure it's sorted out, and they just have this urge that needs to be solved right away. For some people, th that sensation in a sense, works well for them because they do, in fact, call the person right away. Whereas for others, it might be more distracting or debilitating. And I think that you know, when you're thinking about the discipline, this discipline of judgment, coming to accurate judgments, in a sense, for the person who is, it's working relatively well, what they may do to practice this discipline perhaps isn't necessarily disputing those thoughts and by doing so perhaps breaking a system that works for them relatively well but instead seeing if they can perhaps maybe convert those into experiences that are less about anxiety and more about ways to practice caution and prudence and i suppose i think that's related to this issue about how can you ensure you have better impressions because both of these matters you need to take in i think the whole context really look at this diachronic picture and focus on these these patterns in the life as opposed to thinking about for the specific impression you know what's what's going on what do i need to do which make, makes things more difficult you know what one has to say i love that idea of diachronic this idea of really don't look at so your character is nothing but a set of snapshots over time, something you build over time, but your character influences each snapshot, right? And it's that kind of back and forth relationship that I think we're hitting on. Don't underplay the importance of moments in time. Each ascent matters, but don't forget that each of those ascents are only as strong or weak as the character that underpins them, right? And all you can do in the moment is kind of push things in a certain direction a little bit but you can't just wake up one day and, and be a sage. Um, you have to, you have to like building muscle. Epictetus uses this analogy. You have to build it slowly and steadily um, through a series of actions, a series of reps. But it is a virtue like muscle is, is it's diachronic. It's something that's gained over time, maintained over time. I, I, I like that. I think act versus character is really important. When we talk about the discipline of ascent, we're, we're not just talking about acts, even though those acts do matter. Yes. Another concern here I have is I was thinking about how to help the how to help the ignorant. The ignorant sounds intense in our language. I mean, it'd be more like you know, in the Stoic talk. It's that's anybody who's not virtuous, myself included. But I mean, people that you know, people that are going the wrong way, I guess. And for the Stoics, the main way you help the ignorant or you help the people who are getting things wrong is you show them contradictions, right? You you show them. The Stoics are very optimistic about the power of reason. And the idea is something like, you know, if I, if I reveal to somebody, it's the Socratic method, right? We had an episode on the Socratic method that I would encourage people to go listen to. But if I reveal to somebody that they hold position A and position B, and A and B are in contrast, they're going to have to either say they're, they don't conflict or they're going to have to give up one of those. People just have to do that, right? And that's one way to help people. But 
and it's one way to kind of push people's assents in the right direction is to make it clear maybe how their beliefs are conflicting with each other and how they might need to rectify those beliefs. But what about, I think about this challenge, what about in, in our day and age, internet trolls, nihilists, people that are ironic? As Hado points out in his chapter, he says that all Stoic and Socratic argument relies on both parties, accepting that something good is better than something bad, which seems like a pretty low bar. But it's like, what do you do with the people that refuse this proposition? What do you do with the people who aren't afraid of a contradiction? Maybe that's not the people listening to this podcast. Maybe that's not people who consider themselves practicing Stoics. But it makes me wonder about, you know, do any of these exercises work on those kinds of people? And is there any way to kind of get the point across or, or guide the ascents uh, or the belief formation of, of, of this group? It's confusing for me. I'm not really sure what to do about it. Right. I think it's made more confusing by the fact that Hado rightly points out, though, as you know, we've been sort of talking about practicing this discipline in an internal way, doing it to build character. But another aspect of it is not just perfecting that inner discourse, but also working on your external discourse, how you talk with others, how you represent the world to others, uh, and communicating those either you know those ideally communicating those these true beliefs you have or these epistemic virtues you have with others so thinking about how to do that with people who are not playing the same game is exceptionally exceptionally difficult and it might be the case that maybe that's i think the sort of thing where i think especially for many of these cognitive strategies a, a precondition is ensuring that both people are interacting in good faith. And perhaps for those other cases, what's needed is less cognitive strategies and more, if we can, showing the person another way or trying to almost break their frame, reframe things for them in a way that properly motivates what we think is, is the right picture. But that's, that's a certainly a non-trivial thing to do. Yeah, and there's this thing about arguing in good faith, like the person is, the person, you know, is just is just bugging you because they want to bug you. But I think there's some people, there's people that I think are really lost, or really struggling, who are the people who aren't willing to commit to something, or aren't willing to play the game of saying, well, this is this is a way to live that's better than a different way to live. Um, and if they're not playing that game, you know, I, I don't really know how to. I guess yeah, it's like how do you. How do you communicate that? I think you said, well, you try to shock them. You try to get a paradigm shift. Not shock, but try to, try mm-hmm. to you know, you, you don't reason up. You, you try to make a kind of a, a perspective change. Yeah, I think so. I suppose there's another frame on this is, well, sometimes we're the ignorant people and acting in bad faith. And when, when do we catch when we're that person, yeah. uh, you know, when you going back, thinking about this book, a liberated mind, you know, people who show up to therapy, often there's a sense in which they already know what's going on, right? They already know what they ought to do in the verbal sense, but there's me there's, but they're still seeing a therapist and there's a question, well, why is that? And maybe they're deceiving themselves about something or going through the motions in some way 
I think maybe you, I, you might see this with people who read self so much self-help, listen to podcasts, they already know what's right in a sense. So what, what, what are they doing or are they merely procrastinating? Are they truly interacting in good faith? And of course we, we can be those people at certain, at certain times. Yeah, I think that's great. Don't ever be that. And that'll be part of the discipline of ascent. Don't ever be that person or try to always catch yourself if mm-hmm. you're doing that. Right, right. Well, I think we have a few others here, but we're actually at a, a, a pretty good spot to wrap wrap this up. What do you think? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right. Awesome. Yeah, so this was our bit on the discipline of judgment. We'll be covering the other two disciplines over the next few weeks, the discipline of desire, discipline of action to ground these conversations. We're revisiting Pierre Hadot's Inner Citadel. It's not really a book review, but this sort of thing, I think it's a, a good good for both of us to go over again. And also that's a, you know, that's what's going on. That's what's sort of feeding our thoughts right now. So if you want to dive deeper, you can also check out check out Hado's book as well. Great. Thanks, Caleb. Thanks again for listening to Stoa Conversations. If you found this conversation useful, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to practice Stoicism with Michael and I, as well as others walking the Stoic path, we are running our three-week course on Stoicism Applied. It'll be live with a forum, interactive calls, that I think will be an excellent way for a group of people to become more Stoic together. So do check that out at stoameditation.com slash course. And if that's not to your fancy, you can find links to the Stoa app as well as the Stoa letter, our newsletter on Stoic theory and practice at stoameditation.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time.